everyone. I'm Bailey. I'm Drew. And I'm Lacey. And, and we're, we're sarcastic, sarcastic, so let's get sinister. everyone there you go i said it i said it for you did the get on there i don't know bro i'm i ignore half of the things he says um hello everybody i'm not gonna ask you guys how you are because we've been together all day yeah you'll find out in the next couple episodes but maybe so today i never finished my thought she's trying did you want to finish it is so you'll find out but we we're doing another mass recording, and it is um the day before my birthday. Ooh. Still, I'm not gonna say happy birthday again because I feel like I've said it enough. Times. I'm gonna need you to say it multiple times. I am needy. I'm maxed out. Um, rude. What? When's your birthday? Tomorrow, happy um, birthday! In just a mere few hours, mm. I will be another age. Yeah. That's lovely. We're trying to lighten the mood because it's gonna get sad, I think. Yeah. Um Yeah. Alright, who are you talking about? So that? we're gonna talk about the Oakland County child murder. Oh yeah. Sounds good. Um, it's in the name. And I would just like to say that uh before I dive in, like for instance, that is my intro and apologizing for what's about to unfold. Alright, we're not gonna interrupt it. We're just gonna let you say the words. Um so you have a lot of downers. I know it's really a bit of a bummer. The mental health, but it's fine. Um, this case is gonna be more sinister than sarcastic. Yeah, it's gonna be hard. Yeah. Well, do we know who did it? What part about? Don't interrupt me. Don't you understand? Because literally, my next sentence is: unfortunately, it remains unsolved. Then yeah, it's gonna be mostly sinister. Um, recently. It was discovered that there was uh, some neglect and potentially a cover-up. Um, she said, don't interrupt. Since that is recently coming to light, I'm really not going to touch on that or any, like... You want to see if it'll... Police officers more? or pros- prosecution. I don't want to get come at... Okay. Did. I was gonna say you don't you wanna wait till it's unfolded and maybe you can Two? update later. Yeah, but I don't really wanna throw anyone's names out there because they've yeah. You don't wanna get targeted for nope. Um I also just wanna take the time for the victims, um, just because I have never heard about this case before and it's a lot of pre adolescent kids, mm-hmm. so they really deserve the remembrance um of this um and for their families who like still have like really no answer of why this happened and who did this um so i'm only going to be naming the names of victims and like family members um and mentioning the names of known pedophiles who are either dead or still rotting in prison for this or just in general. So, again, trigger warning, this episode contains disturbing descriptions related to sexual assault and torture of children. Um, I am covering this in 
good detail within reason. I don't want to go too far, but there are some things that are graphic. Um, before we also start, I want to shout out the book, The Snow Killings, written by Marnie Rich uh, Kiki. Ken Kennigan. She was a reporter following the reopening of the case in like 2015, which this book, it really showed the dedication of uh, Detective Corey Williams, who was instrumental in reopening the case and like getting the cover up shown a little bit. But it does have a lot of heavy talk in it, but it is a good book. So Alright, so this is about a 13-month reign of terror in Oakland County from 1976 to 1977, where four children were abducted, held captive, and then murdered. At the same time? No, okay. it was through those those 13 months they were each taken. Playgrounds went empty, parents, there was a dramatic shift in, like, kids going home from school, parents demanded on picking up their kids. Playing in the backyard ended up needing parental supervision. And it, like, said in, I think, the book or, like, one of the sources that, like, parents were, like, dreading the opening of the morning paper to yet another elementary school class photo of, like, a happy, smiling kid. This is the largest serial murder in Michigan history and referred to the Michigan snow killings to the fact that it's known on the days that the children's bodies were found. So this takes place, uh, Oakland County is just outside Detroit, just to give you some perspective of where we are. Um, so this is also going to be a two-parter. So the first part I'm going to focus on like the 70s and tell you each about the kids um, and then in part two, we'll go over, like, suspects and, like, where they've been more recently at in the investigation. Hold on, let me get my PowerPoint up so I can show you their darling faces. So our first victim is Mark Stebbins. This is Mark. Does he have a gap in his teeth? He does. Or I think oh, he might be the shadow. Oh, so, Mark was a 12-year-old, shy, sweet 7th grader. He was 4 foot 8 inches, weighing about 100 pounds. He had blue eyes and strawberry blonde hair. His mom described him as a lovable young child. He enjoyed baseball and fishing with dreams of becoming a Marine. Um, his parents, Lester and Ruth, were divorced, and he lived in Ferndale with his mother and his older brother, Michael, who was 15. February 15th, 1976, was the last time his family would see him. Ruth, Michael, and Mark were at an American Legion Hall. Michael and Mark were watching a pool tournament while Ruth was working as a bartender. Mark grew bored and wanted to walk home to watch a movie. Ruth said, that's fine, you can walk home. Um, and he left early afternoon to walk the three-quarter of a mile way home. He was wearing a blue par hooded parka, a maroon sweatshirt, Levi jeans, and black rubber boots. Ruth called home to check on Mark and didn't get a response. She didn't return home till around like 9 p.m. and noticed the house was empty. By 11 p.m. when Mark didn't come home, um, she was terrified and called the police. There hadn't been a kidnapping in Ferndale in 10 years up until this point, so they assumed and probably hoped that Mark was with his friends and would turn up soon. The police conducted a thorough search, checking abandoned buildings, garbage cans, and anywhere they could think 
They also tried looking for anyone who saw Mark walking home and weren't able to locate anybody. Um, when, oh, this is the sad part. Uh, kind of just a heartbreaking part, but, uh, for saying, yeah, when, uh, when the police requested a photo for the missing posters, um, Ruth was struggling financially and she hadn't had enough money for school photos. So they had to do get a sketch artist in to reconstruct a, like an image for Mark's photos. Mm-hmm. Ruth stayed up all night waiting for Mark. She said that she kept hearing noises and thinking it was Mark. She said she was also set three places at the table and hoped that he would come home. Mark was held for four days before being found. So on February 19th, a businessman left his office building around 11.45 a.m. and something caught his eye in the corner of a parking lot. He saw it looked like a mannequin dressed in a blue jacket and jeans. It's never a mannequin. It never is. But we get that a lot. Like, I, find, I, feel, mm-hmm. I feel like we find that a lot in cases like this. Um, Mark was lying face up in a snowbank, his hands covered over his chest, and his head was cradled in the fur-lined hoodie of his parka. The police interviewed another witness who was walking their dog in the same parking lot around 9.30 a.m. the same morning, but their dog didn't discover anything. And their dog was on, a, like, a 20-foot leash as the witness was, like, walking around. Yeah. So, and they were sure that their dog would have found something. And that guy found him at 11.45? Yeah. Okay. Um, So, tight window. Mark looked as if he was carefully placed there, curled up as if he was still sleeping. He had been deceased for less than eight hours, and officers noted wounds and bruising that caused them to believe he was beaten and tied up. This is... We're going to go into his autopsy real quick, so trigger warning. His cause of death was asphyxia. He was suffocated. His wrists and legs bore discoloration, and there was ligature marks. There were also two small crusted lacerations on his left rear scalp and blood stains found on his hood. He had been repeatedly sexually assaulted, but there were no trace evidence of semen on his body or underwear. Um, the body, His body had been washed and his nails manicured, his clothes also appeared to be washed and pressed, and this gave the killer, like, the first, like, one of their nicknames was the babysitter killer because of how he left the body and also washed him. But uh, detectives immediately began working around the clock on this. Lester, his dad, Mark's dad, flew in from Houston for the funeral. Detectives looked into Lester, and he was arrested by Oakland County authorities and charged for being... Uh, pretty much just in debt with, like, child sports payments. Uh, But it was determined that he was not involved with his son's uh, kidnapping and murder. The day after the funeral, somebody placed a memorial prayer card or, like, a memorial card Mm -hmm. from his service in the parking lot where he was found. Um, And this, at first, caused detectives to believe that maybe the murderer returned. But they later determined that it was most likely someone from the funeral, like a yeah, somebody or just like not knowing where he was. So that was in February of 1976. So we're going to jump till December now, and we're going to meet our next victim. So something we're going to find is that this person or persons doesn't really care about gender. He's taken two boys and he's taken two girls. The next victim, her name is Jill Robinson. 
And this is a photo of, these are, well, these are photos of Jill. Oh, stop. Look at her stupid little baby face. I know. So Jill was also 12, and she was described as a sweet, precarious, precocious? Oh, those are both words. Precocious. I was going to say. Per precocious. Precocious. What's that mean? Like, curious, little scamp. Little scamp. Um, so, she, precocious child. Would you describe um, my youngest as that? Yes. I would say so. She was also described as mature beyond her years and known to challenge her mother at times. Jill is a sixth grader with fair skin and freckles under her soft brown eyes. She is an excellent student, enjoyed English, social studies, and science. She lived in Royal Oak, which is, this is all, I'm, I'm from Dover, Oakland County, I believe, with her mother and two younger sisters, Aline, who is nine, and Heather, who is six. Carol and Tom were her parents. They had separated in 72. Tom was an English professor at Oakland Community College, and Carol was a court reporting teacher. Um, yeah. Jill was beginning adolescence, getting through her parents' divorce, and she was especially close with her father. So moving into a new home and, like, starting a school and missing her dad, she was going through, like, a lot. She started seeing a child psychiatrist. How do you spell it? Yep, psychiatrist. Uh, because of her deep-seated fear that someone was going to shoot her. Oh, my God. Well, that's a... That's I would say, yeah. 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 Psychiatrist she, is good. Um, it was said that Jill had terrible nightmares about this, and her psychiatrist and her said Jill was okay, but suggested getting her a cat. Yep. I enjoy. I'm, I feel like Lacey can, would be a better judge. Do cats fix all your problems? Um, most, at the minimum. Hasn't your, I haven't. Hasn't, hasn't your cat tried to kill you a couple times? I have fresh scratches. Oh, we can say that. <laughs> These are from today. Well, yeah, they also turn off her, her sleep machine. But I haven't been shot since I got one. Carol described Jill as almost always having her nose in a book, even reading the newspaper. Uh, at this time... Jill had been looking forward to Christmas. She had already brought and wrapped presents for her sisters with her allowance. She had a stuffed animal for Aline and a Barbie hair dryer for Heather. December 22nd, she had been upset about something but refused to talk about it. Carol wasn't sure if it was, like, puberty or the fact that it was, like, Wednesday and usually the girls woke. So usually their father had them on Wednesdays and overnight and weeknights or weekends. But for something, something changed in their schedule and they had to stay home with their mom on this Wednesday. And she loved her dad. Not that she didn't love her mom, but she vibed with her dad better. Carol had asked Jill, like, to assist in making dinner. Jill refused. And Carol hit a moment of, like, frustration and told Jill, like, I want you to go outside and think about your behavior. Like, pretty much just, like, take a minute, breathe, figure your shit out. Jill then went to her room, packed a backpack with a blanket, a brush, and two books. Carol quickly said, Jill, you don't have to leave. What I really want is for you to talk to me and tell me what's going on. That didn't work, and Jill walked out the front door. Carol at this time simply thought that, like, Jill was just on the front porch and taking a breather. She didn't think that she would have gone anywhere. So ten minutes later, she had Aline call Jill in for dinner, but she wasn't there. She wasn't in the driveway. She wasn't sitting in the car, the family car in the driveway either. Carol checked their babysitter's house, who was across the street. 
thinking that maybe she went there and Jill was not there either. Carol started driving around the neighborhood as snow began, began to fall. She wasn't aware that Jill had taken her bike, um, but with the thought that, like, Jill probably would just went to her dad's or walked to her dad's, and Carol decided to go to church service, which they planned to do after dinner, just to also give Jill space maybe to cool down and, like, take her time. After church, she called home, and there was still no sign of Jill. Carol then drove to Tim's house, the father, uh, but he wasn't home either. At 11.30 p.m., Carol called the police, and they decided to treat Jill as a runaway. They always do. Even with Carol stressing that Jill wouldn't have run away. But she took her bike. The, yeah. This is December, because I know it's right mm-hmm. before Christmas. What what month was the first one? February. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah there's a, a bigger bit of a space. Than yeah. I thought. Okay. Um, you were like, I thought that they weren't letting the kids out. But it, um, it, there was a big so gap. So it doesn't... It has, well, the problem is also with this is... It's different police off, like police forces handling these cases, so they're not really sharing and um, working together just yet, mm-hmm. and they don't really see the pattern until like yeah. the third I mean, or fourth kid. If that happened that many months ago. That wouldn't yeah. be the first thing that parents. Yeah, that wouldn't yeah. pop. So it's it's not there yet for that fear, but it does get there. So the last anyone saw of Jill was at a hobby center around 730. Um, but there was no massive search since they believed her to be a runaway. You should still look for her. Even though they yeah. found her bike behind the hobby store the night she disappeared. Maybe she's a runaway, but she's 11 or 12 and it's snowing and it's Michigan. Yeah. Jill, I, I feel like the the main thing is she's still a child. Yeah. Yeah. Even if she, I guess, they're probably thinking she'll come back. But, like, well, she doesn't. She go get her. Jill was last wearing a denim jumpsuit, snow boots, a bright orange winter parka, and a blue knit cap with zigzag yellow stripes. Both parents believed if Jill was riding her bike anywhere, it would have been to her father's house. For Christmas, because Jill... Was gone for a few days. She was gone for four days, I think. Her parents still played the part of Santa Claus for the other girls. And reporters ran that Carol and Jill had had an argument and Jill had run away. This pained Carol because that just, that's not really what happened. Yeah. Uh, I imagine she was feeling guilty like any. Yeah. She told her to go outside. He really wanted to stress that, that it's not, they didn't have a fight. It wasn't like that. It was a a kid who was upset and, and just needed a minute. Yeah. yeah. December 26th, the day after Christmas, Jill was found. Her body was in Troy, which is another little city, um, a few miles north of Royal Oak, which is where she lived, on a shoulder of a northbound I-75. A motorist notified police around 8.45 a.m., and Jill was found still wearing her backpack, which contained the blanket, but her books were missing. This is a trigger warning for how she was found. I think that her her cause of death was most shocking. So just a heads up. She was not sexually assaulted. It was determined that Jill was fed and cared for for at least three days. She seemed to be washed, cleaned, with no signs of sexual abuse at all. It was appeared that she was carried from a car, placed on the ground by the freeway, 
and shot once from a range of six to seven inches in the face with a 12-gauge shotgun. Oh. The autopsy revealed that she may have died of shock and hemorrhage rather than the wound itself. They believe the crime occurred between 2 and 4 a.m., and it was theorized that Jill may have have been suffocated, but when she was placed on her back, the weight of her backpack, like, pushed her torso up and, like, forced trapped air from her lungs, leading to her killer to believe that, like, she took a breath. Yeah. And she was, like, still, like, alive and awake and needed to be shot. So that's Jill. Um, Then we're going to Christine. And this takes place in January. So very soon after Yeah. Um, There was a big gap between the first one and two. The cooling period is... Definitely getting shorter. Significantly. Yeah. This is um, Christine... My lick, you think? Yeah. Okay. So that's pictures of her, and that's that was a picture of them taking her body. Christine, is this? I feel like this is probably when it's going to start getting concerning to parents because it was like right after the other. Yeah, it definitely was starting to build up from here. Uh, I think after. I think what? when Christine oh, okay. was taken, it started getting very, very scary. And then the last one, too, was, it was, uh, that was when, like, everyone was panicked. I was going to ask you, what made them connect the Jill to, um, what was his name? Mark. I don't think they but did at this point. I think But it eventually, was... is it because they were taken care of mm-hmm. and, like, they were, like... And they were held for a few days. Okay. So, the other thing, I was going to mention it in part two, but it's important to note that, and it spells it out in more detail in the book, The Snow Killings, um, that in the 70s, we were going through the gas crisis. Mm-hmm. Detroit being right there and being, like, very car driven like this is we make cars here like american mm-hmm. cars people moved from buying like american cars to like better on gas mileage like foreign like, cars Toyo- yeah toyota and stuff so there are a lot of like layoffs there's a lot of poverty and unfortunately with that we saw a escalation in child pornography and abuse like, in the book, at one point, they were saying that, like, people would sell their children to rings. And it was, yeah, it's not a good time time to be a child in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And they were seeing a lot of it, too, which is why some, like, it, it may have taken them a while to, like, piece these together. Mm-hmm. And it was also strange that, like, they were keeping them for so long, like, for multiple days. And, like, yeah. it seemed like they cared for them. So Christine was 10 years old. She went missing just seven days after the discovery of Jill's body. Deborah Ashcroft was her 29-year-old mother of four, working at a bowling alley in Berkeley. Christine was described as a happy, content, bright-eyed fifth grader and an older sister. There is an eight-year-old Matthew, six-year-old Mark, and four-year-old Erica. And she was looking forward to returning to school after holiday break because Christmas mm-hmm. just passed and she was excited to tell everyone about her gifts. I feel like that was it's so typical of a kid. Yeah. 
Her parents were divorced, and she and her siblings lived with their mother in Berkeley, Michigan. Which was, was Mark's parents separated? Yeah. Yeah. Her dad was in Houston. So far, so far, everyone's parents are separated. I am led to believe that the last one won't be then. Okay. Around 6.30 p.m., January 2nd, 1977. She's like not even a week. I know. I'm telling you, you need... I'm mad at you about it. I'm sorry. Christine was bored and asked her mom if she could go to to the store for a magazine. Deborah allowed her to make that walk, explaining the route to take, and reminded her to take her time and to wait for the light. She also told her to hurry, and Christine promised that she would. It was four and a half blocks from their home to the 7-Eleven that she was headed. After a half hour, when Christine failed to return, Deborah called the police. 35 officers from nine different departments made a task force that the prosecution... That prosecutioner Patterson called the strongest effort I've seen in this county. So at this point, they started. Yeah, they didn't immediately yeah. think she was a runaway. Yeah. Deborah said, people kept talking about the Royal Oak girl, who was Jill. But I'm just not even going to think about that. She later said that her young sons kept asking, when is she coming home? Hmm. Police searched all possible routes Christine could have taken between the store and her home, and they searched parked cars, trash bins, alleys, tool sheds within a half-mile radius of her home and came up with nothing. Kathy Carlson, the 7-Eleven clerk, remembered that she sold a magazine to Christine. Hmm. So, so she, she did make it. She, she made it there. 11. Yeah. For 20 days, Deborah paced the floor frantically. 20, 20 days? 20 days. Exhausting herself with worry. She kept a 24-hour vigil waiting for her daughter to come home. She went to the news begging for Christine's return, and she raised $17,000 to offer as a reward. In the 70s. Yeah. today And in Detroit. Today, that would be $84,000. Tom Ascroft, Christine's stepfather, drove around day and night in search for her with his loaded pistol ready. Christine was technically held for 19 days, but for that 20th day. She was found. January 21st, 1977, around 11.45 a.m., something blue in a snowbank caught the eye of a postal worker. As he approached, he saw a hand. He was found in a snowbank in Franklin Village, Michigan. She was found uh, at a dead-end road about 16 minutes from her home. It was said that her body was found, that it was so frozen that they had to wait until the following day to, to perform the autopsy. So her body could thaw. Her body had been carefully placed just like the other victims. The killer closed her eyes and crossed her arms and then tucked her in the snow, patting it down, leaving handprints. Trigger warning. This is going into her autopsy a little bit. Um, Her cause of death was ruled asphyxia by smothering. There was minimal bruises, but they did find sperm in both the uh, Mm. vagina and rectum. Her clothes were neat and clean, including her underwear. The medical examiner believed that Christine had dressed herself after being naked for a time, but Deborah disagreed, stating that Christine would have never tucked her pants into her boots, nor would she have tied her blouse in the front when the shirt tied in the back. I don't know why they assume she dressed herself instead of... It just feels like a specific thing to yeah. be like, oh, we can figure this out. Yeah, it also just, it sucks that, like, Deborah like, would be like, no, Christine wouldn't have talked to her boots like that. Like, that's not her. Yeah, and that means that she knew that somebody else dressed her. Yeah. So that was Christine. Our fourth victim. Maybe 
Sorry, maybe they were just like trying to comfort her by saying that. Yeah. And she was like, no. Because yeah. I imagine they probably told her that they found that she had been sexually assaulted. Yeah. And they were like, but, you know, she did dress herself when she, at some point. Yeah. And she was just like, no. Um, our next victim is Timothy King. That's him. Timmy. That looks exactly like what I picture of picture of a kid in the seventies. You know what I mean? Like the yeah. hair. I was getting when is the what was the big Brady brunch? What year when was that 70s? set in? That was the seventies, I think. Okay, because that's given off little body vibes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well. So Tim was an eleven year old straight aid student in sixth grade. He was the youngest of four siblings to parents Barry and Marion. He had two brothers, Mark, who was 13, and Chris, who was 16, and his sister, who was the oldest, Kathy, was 17. Tim is described as a good kid. He loved playing hockey and baseball. His favorite thing to do was zoom through the neighborhood on his skateboard. Kathy described Tim as kind, considerate, and very funny, and sometimes mischievous in a harmless way. He would sometimes laugh so hard at something you could barely understand him, and he'd fall over laughing. They lived in Birmingham, Michigan, which was a white-collar professional neighborhood. He goes missing in March of 1977. So, again, pretty close to Jill. And and, and different, different like, economic situations, yeah. too, because the first one, his mom couldn't have been forward to school pictures. Yeah. And this one, they're in an, an upper-class mm-hmm. neighborhood, you said. Um, so March 16th, 1977, Barry and Marion were out with a client at, uh, of their, of Barry's law firm. Um, Chris was babysitting in the neighborhood, so he was out of the house. Mark was at play practice at the middle school, and Kathy was getting ready for a Jerry Lewis stand-up show. Tim was going to stay home alone, and then he, so he approached Kathy while she was getting ready, and he asked to borrow money to run to the pharmacy for candy. He borrowed 30 cents and left to head to the pharmacy on his skateboard around 7.45 p.m. The pharmacy was less than three blocks from home, and uh, Kathy was planning on leaving around, like, 8, and she did. 9 p.m., Marion and Barry arrived home, followed by Mark and Chris, but Tim was nowhere to be found. Marion and Chris started driving around the uh, neighborhood and to Tim's friends' houses, seeing if he was there, while Barry and Mark stayed home to see if Tim would turn up. Kathy didn't arrive home until close to, like, 2 a.m., and was worried that she was in trouble with all the lights on when she got home. Her parents quickly questioned her about Tim, and she explained, and their hearts sank. The clerk in the pharmacy had said she sold Tim candy, and he exited through the rear exit of the pharmacy between 8 and 8.30 p.m., the parking lot behind the pharmacy was shared with like a grocery store mm-hmm. and witnesses later came forward a witness came forward saying that she saw Tim talking to a man in the parking lot. She described a man and also gave a description of his car uh that the man was like leaning on. It was a dark blue AMC gremlin with a white hockey sticks stick stripe. And the man was described between 25 and 35 years old, white with dark brown hair cut in a shaggy style, and he was husky build with mutton chop sideburns. The day after Tim went missing, a task force was called bringing together the precincts Ferndale, Southfield, Berkeley, Royal County, Troy, and Bur- Birmingham. 
Nearly 100 law lawmen from Oakland County, volunteers, Oakland County Sheriff investigators, the county helicopter, and the special task force were all scouring for Tim. They performed house-to-house -house interviews in two-man teams, starting on the King Street and fanning out. They didn't find anything. During a press conference, Barry pleaded, I don't know if you have children or want them. Please treat Tim the same way you would your own child. Talk to him. He's a talkative kid. I don't know if you have a brother, but Kathy, Chris, and Mark said to treat Tim just like you would a brother. We want him back. Please send him home. He then directed his attention to Tim. I want to say hi to Tim. We love you. I spoke with Coach Riker, and they had baseball tryouts yesterday. But don't worry. They'll have another one when you are when you get home. Stay tough and say your prayers. We're with you, buddy. So this is kind of the description of the guy in the car. So it looks like that weird thing. Mm -hmm. looks like a tiny hearse has like a weird like hatch in the back yeah um, like a tiny hearse the task force tracked down anyone uh, or they attempted to track down all of the 8,000 blue gremlins registered in Michigan which was the car they only managed to get 3,000 of them checked and they also did this thing where they enlisted mail carriers um, smart. In hopes that they might discover, like, leads along their routes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just be like, hey, keep an eye out. Mm hmm They, like, the task force had, like, many different, like, thing alleys that they went yeah. through. Like, they did that. They also went to the schools and, like, reached out to the kids and were like, if you've seen anyone like this or has anyone talked to you or approached you, like, let us know or, like, but keep, like, an eye out, too. Um, they also came up with a profile. They... Had a strong suspicion it was male. Yeah. Because of the semen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I was going to say, I don't want to cut you off, but this would be a good case for them to, like, solve now. Yeah. They're working you, on it. Yeah, no, I know. But, like, you know how they just recently found the Golden State Killer? Yeah. This would be a good case for them to find. They actually, um, it's going to be in part two, but they're using the techniques that they did good. to get the Golden State Killer to kind of, like, figure out, like, the DNA. Good. Because I feel like that would make a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so the profile was, it was a male, possibly two, um, aged between 25 and 30 years old, educated, uh, intelligent, Caucasian. He had a capacity to store and keep a victim for a number of days without being detected. Can had I say? I think it might be two. Okay. Because I feel like one is more heartless. Mm -hmm. For shooting Jill in the face. But then someone cares enough to groom them. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know. I find it hard to believe that that person who could, like, manicure them and bathe them and, like, make sure that they're positioned in a nice yeah. way. Make sure that the hood is up to keep them warm in the, dis the cold. I find it hard that they would also be like, well, I'm going to shoot her in the face because yeah. she might be breathing, so... Have they all been killed in, like, the winter months? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Maybe it's someone not there all the time. Okay. Santa? Yes. Oh, no. <gasps> it was Santa. Oh. That's our opinion, Santa. Don't come after That's us. That's fine. Santa. Someone's shooting for Christmas, guys. <laughs> no. Um, Never too early. 
The killer has a compulsion for cleanliness and is very neat. His house and car are very neat to the point of being frantic. Uh, little to no abuse, substance abuse involved. His work schedule permits a certain amount of freedom of like movement, of, like being able to do this stuff. What if it's a married couple? Like the woman is the one who's taking care of the kid, but she's very. I don't, I, I don't know. Like. We're not at theories just yet. I'm at theories. Okay. I'm going to um, solve this case. Great. They believed he, it was a white-collar worker with abnormal sexual habits, which I think is an understatement, lives or works in Oakland County. The task force also set up, set up a tip line by March 19th, and they received more than 600 tips. In one week at a time, that number would go up to 4,000. They checked sex crime records in the other states. They checked U.S. customs being monitored, like, suspicious persons and cars by the Canadian border because we're in Michigan. Um, They investigated 4,000 known sex offenders in Oakland County. They were all checked and rechecked and cleared. Um, They taught stranger danger and went to the schools asking the children any past or recent attempts to approach them. And that's what the, like, task force was, like, upfront yeah. doing while also trying to find him. Marion King, Tim's mom, wrote a, the kidnapper a letter published in the Detroit News. Um, it is, I'm expecting at any moment for the side door to bang open and hear Tim say, have we ate yet? I mean, have we had dinner yet? When that happens, I will run for his favorite Kentucky Fried Chicken and mix his glass of Ovaltine. Then when he has had the usual eight Oreos and some plain milk to dunk them, Tim and I will go on our delayed shopping trip. We plan to buy a much-wanted light blue warm-up suit with the money he was saving from his newspaper route. Wherever Tim is, he's distressed about worrying me. He has always left notes or called to tell me where he is. He is impatient to return to rehearsing his role as Mike TV in the upcoming production of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory at Adams School. He is also eager to play on his basketball team and try out for Little League. There are no words to express how much we all missed him. We can hardly wait to see him hug him and hear his latest collection of jokes. It is my hope that Tim is not frightened or hungry and that he is not cold or any worse. I appeal... To all of you from the bottom of my heart, help bring him home to us very soon. Do whatever you can to help him and call the Birmingham police with any possible information that may be useful. We are overwhelmed at the outpouring of love and support from neighbors, friends, and concerned persons. The magnificent efforts of the uh, Birmingham police and their associates from all over Michigan are beyond any expectations. We are eagerly, uh, eagerly anticipating Tim's safe arrival. Someone please give him all our love until we do our do that ourselves. So, March 22nd, 1977, six days after Tim had been taken, um, two young adults were making a U-turn in I thought you were going to say Whoopi. Maybe, I mean, maybe they were on their way. Around 11 p.m. When their headlights passed over a shallow ditch and they spotted something red sticking out of the snow. It was Tim's red hockey jacket. Only a few feet away from his body was his skateboard. 
This was only 20 minutes away from his home. Mary insisted on being the one to identify her son when he was brought back. We're going to go into his autopsy, so massive trigger warning. He was sexually assaulted on numerous occasions. No semen was found. Scrapes at the margins of his mouth and scratches on the inner lining of his mouth and a bite mark on his tongue. The tongue was swollen, which was consistent with smothering, and the left side of his forehead was badly bruised. It was later determined that Tim's head had been struck shortly after death. There was no sign of struggle or more trauma to his face, leading them to believe that this was, he was smothered with a pillow in his sleep. And his, I think the theory was, like, he may have struck his head, like, on, like, something in, like, the trunk mm. or, like, a rock when he was placed down. His body was extremely clean, and the fingernails and toenails were also ex- extremely cleaned. It appeared he was fed KFC before he was killed as well, which, according to his mother, was his favorite. Yeah, she put that in that letter. Mm-hmm. Do you think the killer heard that then? Yes. Because uh, they said they published her letter in the newspaper. Yeah. Well, I, I think I for sure he read that. He read that and was like, oh, let me give him this. I think the the woman involved did. Okay. I feel like the man is like an abusive type, domineering, mm-hmm. and the woman is like, I'm gonna make sure you're you're. I know what he's gonna do, but I'm gonna make these last days the best I can. So, those are the four main victims. When you look this up, there are three other potential victims. I, well, first of all. They, for two of them, the person that did them has been found and charged. And they're all very different and don't follow the same correlation. They're not, like, Um, the same victim pool type thing. They weren't kept, really. They weren't washed. Um, These were massively different, like... Scenarios. They were just children that yeah. happened in the same um, area. Same area, same kind of like time frame. It's well, pretty close. I I'm wonder... gonna go over them just to let their names be read and everything. Yeah. I wonder if but the I... other people were like, this is a good chance for me to do something and blame it on somebody else. Maybe. But I mean, did they publish a lot of the details? I don't know. The public? Going back to the following year, 1976, 16-year-old Cynthia Ray, mm, I don't know how to say her last name, hold on. 16 is older than the others. Yep. I don't, that's not even prepubescent. Yeah, that's like a whole different age group. That's pubescent. Um, Yeah, that's that fancy French word that ends with an X and expects everybody to know how to just say that. What is it? C A D Cadell I E U X Cadell. I guess I would say Cadell. Okay. So Cynthia Ray Cadell, I think. Um, she she says goofy like. She was from for the record, Louisville, Michigan. She was last seen uh, around eight twenty p.m. January fifteenth, nineteen seventy six. She was tall, pretty, with blue eyes, and was a brunette. She lived with her mother and her stepfather and was in high school. She was walking home from school to go to her friend's house, um, and her parents thought that she was going to just stay over there at her friend's house since, I think it was like a Thursday. They were like, oh, she'll just go to school the next day with her friend. Um, 
But Cynthia planned on walking home that night and coming home. They weren't prepared for that. So it wasn't until Friday afternoon that they filed a missing person oh, they didn't around six thirty. They didn't even know they didn't she was know gone she was for a while. Yeah. yeah. Around one a.m. January sixteenth, so the next day, a driver noticed something on the side of the road. Cynthia was found naked, her skull crushed by a blunt instrument. And she was raped and sodomized. So, yeah, that's not the same. It's not the same. It's terrible, but she was not even held captive. She did when she didn't appear to be cared for either. She when, just, sir. Yeah. When did you say that one was? Uh, this was January 15th, 1976. Oh. So before Mark. Yeah. Then we have Sheila Schrock. Schrock? Who was 14 years old from Birmingham, Michigan, which is where Tim was from. She was last seen at 8.20 p.m. Um, on January 19th, 1976, also before Mark. Mm. She was a freshman in high school living with her older brother, James, after her parents died of cancer. She enjoyed playing the piano and was an excellent student. Sheila, at the time, was babysitting her brother's baby while he was out. The baby and Sheila were both upstairs playing as an intruder broke in to their house. And before he happened upon... Their house, he had been breaking into multiple homes, like, on a spree, um, tying up the homeowners and taking cash and jewelry. So when he happened upon Sheila, he raped and sodomized her and then shot her five times in the stomach with a thirty-eight caliber handgun. The killer then departed after mingling in the small crowd that had gathered outside upon hearing the shots. And then he quietly sw- slipped away to his gold Tudor 1976... 1967, sorry. Cadillac and drove off. Which are you... Did you say... Which ones were the ones that have been found? He has been found, I think. And I think the next one is, too. I know I wrote it down. I think it's further down a little bit. I was going to say, because we're getting closer to the prepubescent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, sorry. So Cynthia's and Sheila's were both solved and ruled out to being related to this. Okay. There's so another the, one that's like the next one is still unsolved. That one's yeah. brother lost his parents to cancer. Both parents to cancer, and then his sister was murdered. Yeah. In his home. Yeah. While watching his baby. Yes. Um, a more horrifying part of that story is the next door neighbor was on uh was shoveling snow from his roof and saw the entire event. Oh my god. Yeah. Um, and I think he was on his roof and he was like unable to like get down in time to like help or like call the police. Yeah. So he just Fortunately, just solid on. Um, the next one is Jane Louise Allen. She was 14 years old from Royal, Royal Oak, which is where I think Jill was from. Jill was from, yeah, Royal Oak. Okay. So Jane Louise Allen was from Royal Oak. She was 14. She was last seen August 7th, 1976. So this is right in between Mark and Jill. Mm-hmm. Um, she was hitchhiking from her house to see her boyfriend in Auburn Heights, which was about 17 miles away. He left her his house around 12.30 p.m., but once she arrived, they got into a disagreement and she left. She was last seen walking with her thumb out near I-75 and University Drive in Potomac. Four days later, August 12th, 
Jane was found floating in the Green Miami River in Miamisburg, Ohio. Her hands had been tied behind her back with shreds of a t-shirt. They believe she had been dead before she was tossed in the river, possibly from carbon monoxide poisoning, believed when she was, like, that she could have been, like, in a trunk. Mm. Um, decomposition made it impossible to tell whether she had been sexually molested. I think she's in the same window and she's, like, closer to the age, but the fact that she was found floating in a river yeah. isn't the normal dump. So. Yeah. I mean, like, and she was held for a few days. Too odd is that what Mark was in February seventy six. The next one wasn't until December. Yeah, and then it goes December, January, March. Yeah. Or no. December, January, March. Uh, I think so. Yeah. I March. was wondering if maybe there was another one in between, not in the area. Like for whatever reason, the killer was somewhere else. That's just a huge gap. Gap for then the next gap to be so tiny. Like, we don't see a, a gradual decrease. It's m- almost a year, yeah. honestly, and then, like, weeks. Yeah. Or maybe, like, because Bailey was saying how a lot of parents were, like, selling their kids. Mm. Maybe they bought a kid. Yeah, maybe that. And that kid wasn't mm. reported missing. Right, maybe there the other was, And the body was never found. The people that I lean most towards, because it is a duo, mm. um... They had other victims. Yeah. That they didn't kill, but they um, had other outlets. We'll find out in part two. Yeah. Okay. Um, Is it a husband and wife? No. I also think it's weird that the second victim wasn't sexually assaulted at all. There might be a reason for that mentioned okay. in part two as well. Okay. Yeah, we're getting ahead of ourselves, yeah. Lacey. Can you see I'm just, I'm just laying out some But it is, that it is something to take note of. Yeah, that, everybody yeah. will learn about in a couple days. Jill's, and and Jill's cases, I mean, she was shot. She, it yeah. seemed like she was probably tried to be asphyxiated like the rest of them. And they probably, because her back was thrown on her backpack, and they probably got scared, and that's why they shot her. Yeah. Wrapping up part one a little bit. It's clear that Mark, Jill, Christine, and Tim's murders showed a pattern that differed from Sheila, Cynthia, and Jane Louise. Again, Sheila and Cynthia's cases were both solved and ruled out as being related to the Oakland County child killer case. But they do just... I wanted to make sure there were no questions for people because if they research this on their own, they're going to see that that's kind of related. The kids were held for periods of days, died within hours of their bodies being found. The four kids were younger than the teenage girls. Their bodies and clothes were cleaned. And the killers placed their bodies in, like, conspicuous places, like, close to well-traveled roads. So, so they be would fun. be easily spotted. Um, they also, like, put them in, like, snow. Yeah. In their bright colored coats. Yeah. So April 4th, 1977, after Tim was found, this is the time when people were very, very scared that, like, playgrounds were vacant, people were adamant on picking their kids up from school, like, they couldn't even let their kids outside in their backyard without supervision. A typewritten note or letter full of misspellings and typos was delivered to a doctor, Dr. Danto. He, like, been trying to work psychology angle oh, okay. for this guy for these people for the police 
Like, make a profile? Yeah. The leather, he also, I don't really like him. He seemed to think that, like, the killer was trying to talk to him, leave all these hints and everything. Uh, I don't think it was as Zodiac-killer-esque as he thought, but... He was reading too much into things. Yeah. He received a typewritten letter. The letter claimed to be from the roommate of the killer... The roommate claimed that he was his slave, and he said that he stays in an apartment during the day while he's at work. He named himself Alan, but made sure that it wasn't his real name. Said that the killer went to Vietnam, and that screwed him up, and he's doing this to get even with people who didn't go. They tried arranging a meeting where Alan would provide photos as proof in exchange for, like, immunity, but Alan was a no-show for this meeting Mm -hmm. with investigators. By December 1978, the task force shut down, the murders stopped, and the officials reported that the reason that the the case was never solved was it was taken care of. The killer had been committed- The police said that? Yeah. Interesting. Said that the killer had been committed to a mental institution by his wealthy family, and that so long as he was locked up and no other children would be killed, they saw no reason to hand him over to authorities. And that is the end of part one. Oh, Interesting. Um, I feel like the families of the people, the children that were murdered might care more about, like, I don't know. Knowing who killed their children. Yeah, also that. What? Yeah. Hmm. I guess we'll have to tune in for part two. Relax. I I didn't mean that to sound so, like, (laughs) advertisement. Yeah, I was going to say, it doesn't always have to be a plug. Yeah. That was a good place to leave it, though. Thank you. I chose hard for that one. Well, that was sinister. And we were sarcastic. And we hope you keep listening.